0: Coming up, close to a million civilians have fled the latest fight in Syria. They're facing the depths of winter and a blocked Turkish border. So where is the West? The US insists the transatlantic alliance is as strong as ever, but do any of its partners believe that? Meanwhile, America prepares to sign a peace deal with the Taliban and pull thousands out of Afghanistan. And 20 years after the ban on gay and bisexual people serving in the forces was lifted, we hear what it was like to live your life in secret. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. The scale of the humanitarian tragedy unfolding in Syria is hard to comprehend. Close to a million civilians, the majority women and children, have fled towards the Turkish border in the depths of winter. They're trying to escape an onslaught by Bashar al-Assad's forces determined to crush remaining opposition to him in
1: Idlib. The battle to liberate the Idlib and Aleppo countryside is ongoing regardless of the empty bubbles of sound coming from the north, as well as the battle for liberating all Syrian soil, crushing terrorism and achieving stability.
0: Western nations, though, appear unwilling to do anything, leaving Turkey and Russia as the main outside influences. The UN's appealed to both to step back from a possible confrontation, but Turkey's threatening to attack Syrian government forces if their offensive isn't halted. Well, earlier I spoke to Hamish de Breton Gordon, a former army officer who's been advising a number of groups on the ground in Syria.
2: We are swimming against a a tide of indifference in the international community. So I, for one, support the Turks in this, and and actually Karen Pierce, our ambassador at the UN, also said that we should support it. Uh, I think the, the only thing that Assad and Putin might listen to is some sort of threats like the Turkish threats to stop attacking civilians. And as we've seen so vividly on our TV screens over the last 48 hours, you know, lots of people are being seriously injured, are dying, are starving, and they're living in the most unbelievable conditions. It was minus seven last night. We're at a point, we're at a turning point here. And I think the Turks are right to be firm. And as a NATO ally, we should support them.
0: The assumption is that Assad's forces though are going to achieve the total victory he's been talking about within weeks. It does seem unstoppable.
2: That's Assad talking yesterday. He talking about rubbing people's nose in the dirt in a very vile presentation that he gave to his local media yesterday that's been broadcast. I don't think that that is the case. There is still quite a lot of territory to take. And I think with the Turks in and around the place, and we've seen what has happened when a a number of Turkish soldiers were killed and the retribution the Turks brought on that, We've also seen the Turks shoot down two Syrian army helicopters in the last seven days and that has stopped the barrel bombs. These are the bombs that have killed the majority of the half million civilians over the last seven or eight years. So I think it is a long way from done. If nothing is done, lots of civilians are going to die in the next few months and the Turks trying to push the regime back, might just create the space for a ceasefire that everybody at the UN is calling for.
0: You um, represent and work with medics of non-governmental organisations in Syria. What are they telling you about the conditions?
2: Horrific our main hospital has run out of money we haven't paid our staff for 6 months we've run out of the most basic medicines the russians vetoed the un mandate to put aid across borders on the 10th of january this year therefore it hasn't happened uh, and uh, you know i've been calling on on the british government i know we can't do it alone to to get aid to these people i mean the least we can do is give them the basic medicines to support them and help Patch them up after they've been blown to pieces in these barrel bombs, and also to get food. Uh, Everybody tells me we can't airdrop food into Idlib because it's too dangerous. But you know the Turks seem to be able to operate, uh, and the Israeli air force operate across Syria with complete impunity. So I think it is time we have we need to have a real hard look. Uh, We've been absent on a humanitarian basis. Uh, in Syria and particularly in Idlib, and you know we we have the the most capable military in the world pound for pound. I think getting aid in is something we should seriously think about.
0: You say we have the most capable military in the world. I mean, what what do you think the British military should be doing?
2: Well, I think we should be looking seriously about how we could get aid to our hospitals and to those refugee camps. It might well be that if we give direct support to the Turks, then that can happen. Now, just remember, this, this is a 15-minute helicopter ride from Cyprus, uh, you know, our main base in the area, which would be very easy to stage operations from. I'm talking about humanitarian operations. Uh, aid is not, you able know, to get in because of the fighting and because the borders are shut. But I think uh, working with the Turks and working with our other NATO allies and UN, it must be possible. The UN has been absent in Syria for years. You know, where are the peacekeepers? Where is that will at the UN to get food and aid to people. You know, we're not talking about intervening militarily. It's all about aid.
0: How would you explain then what you obviously are describing, which is presumably indifference in your eyes?
2: I think indifference is the explanation people would use because the situation is so very difficult. Uh, And I think particularly in this country, so many people think that if we get involved in Syria, we'll repeat the mistakes of... Afghanistan and Iraq but it's a very different situation you know this is an Eastern Mediterranean country this is on the edge of Europe a few hours flight from where we are this is where the Islamic State was born and grow and this is where we at the UK helped defeat the Islamic State but the conditions are perfect for the Islamic State to regrow And that will be a threat to us in in London, in New York, in Paris for many years to come. If we do nothing, tens of thousands of civilians are going to die over the next few months. And I fear that ISIS will regrow in those embers.
0: Hey, Mr. Breton Gordon speaking to me earlier. While Western powers appear unwilling to intervene, this week there have been talks in Moscow on Syria's future involving Russia and Turkey. Russia backs Assad's fighters while Turkey has sent troops to try to create a safe zone and stop any more Syrian refugees joining the three and a half million who've already crossed the border. Well, Christopher Lee is here in the studio with us, our defence analyst. Christopher, you have Turkey and Russia debating the future of Syria in Moscow. America and may European powers seemingly absent on this
3: you know we get this thing why doesn't the West interfere it's not the West at all it is something far more interfere or intervene (laughs) interfere because it's not an intervention Um, it's interfering with what's going on at the moment Um, when um, Hamish talks about where are the peacekeepers um, uh, the answer is in the uh, Security Council of the United Nations because it was on the 10th of January that the, but Russia stopped aid going in by basically vetoing plans that there might be. in Earlier this week, In there were a large committee within the General Assembly of the United Nations. That's the whole debate within, it goes to the floor of the United Nations as opposed to the Security Council, which is only what, uh, um, 25 people, 15 people. Um, and they said, we have to discuss what's going on there, and they sp- people didn't turn up because they knew that once they put their resolution into the Security Council and there is the problem Russia and China but mainly Russia uh, who, is the, who is the controlling power in, in Syria at the moment will completely uh, just veto any plans for intervention and interference because that's what it is it's the interference with, with the course of the war that's going on at the moment the other side of it uh, is the so-called West uh, has uh, got involved in as much that it backed the wrong side and to m- much, much delight from the, of the Russian certainly and, and Assad, uh, is that the, the Western countries actually lost that part of the battle, and therefore because they the backed West-
0: the wrong rebels, because
3: they backed them through the through uh, through through, through uh, the Gulf uh, of Persian Gulf uh, countries. Uh, And they they backed the wrong rebels and therefore they made a huge contribution to the way the war has gone. As for the United Nations, the United Nations has been drawing attention to what's going on in Syria. They haven't just backed away. They haven't been able to get in. There are something like 62 million people displaced persons in the world today. And the United Nations gave probably brought more attention to those that are, going, that, that are displaced do, do you think in Syria. That, do
0: you think though it's inevitable then in that light that uh, President Assad will declare victory in the next few weeks?
3: Uh, well he's, yeah, I mean basically he has got clear out victory. Uh, he's still he's still using helicopters he's still he's, he he is still willing to continue turning the war uh, at different stages into a so-called unacceptable war mm. what is an unacceptable war this is the first war that i can remember for a long time where where uh, chemical weapons have been used openly and that is the, the extent of it
0: Well, let's bring in now Elizabeth Braw, Senior Research Fellow in Modern Deterrence at the Royal United Services Institute. Um, Elizabeth, the UK was one of a number of countries to dither for quite a long time about whether and how much to get involved in Syria. I mean, effectively, did did the UK just simply give the green light then to President Assad?
4: Well, lots of countries can be blamed for having uh, given a green light to President Assad, including the US, where... Uh, president obama uh, famously um, declared uh, red lines which were then broken by by the uh, syrian government forces and uh, uh, lo and behold nothing happened um, so it's uh, the uk is not the
0: only culprit if, if we're looking for culprits okay stay with us Sit Still to come, looking back 20 years after the lifting of the ban on gay and bisexual people serving in the armed forces.
1: I was always looking over my shoulder. It was a scary, scary time because I was really scared that somebody would out me and somebody outed me. It wasn't just me then being thrown out and losing my job. It was losing that income, losing that home. zip SIPREP.
0: Now, the idea of the West's absence from the world stage was the theme of this year's Munich Security Conference, a major annual gathering of leaders across politics, security and business. In part, that notion dubbed Westlessness is down to the pivot towards China and the Pacific. In part, it's the rise of Donald Trump. But US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told the conference critics have got it wrong.
5: I'm happy to report that the death of the transatlantic alliance is grossly over-exaggerated. The West is winning. We are collectively winning. We're doing it together.
0: Well, that's not a view shared by Germany's president, Frank Walter Steinmeier.
5: And our closest
3: ally, the United States of America, under the current government, rejects the very idea of international community, as if an attitude of every man for himself could work as a global policy. Great again, if necessary, at the expense of neighbours and partners. That's how it appears, at least.
0: Well, Elizabeth Braw from Russia is still with me. Uh, Elizabeth, you were at the Munich conference. European leaders were talking about the need to act together without the United States. But is there any evidence those nations can speak with one voice?
4: Not really. Uh, The the problem within Europe uh, is that we are really never fully in agreement we are in agreement on some issues which is obviously why the european union despite what everybody uh, what many people in the uk might think has been a, a huge success but on, on security policy it's a bit more complicated because the threat situation the threat scenario is different in different countries which is why uh, poland and the baltic states for example are very keen on, on strong relations with the united states while france is, is keen for europe to to sort of strike out on its own and so Europe doesn't really speak with one voice, uh, isn't speaking with one voice now and, and hasn't really at any point in, in the past generation either.
0: And what do you make of Mike Pompeo's insistence that the transatlantic alliance is as strong as ever?
4: Well, I must say uh, Mike Pompeo deserves uh, some recognition because even as even as uh, he was speaking in Munich uh and even as European leaders in Munich were criticizing the United States for for not being committed to Europe, uh, 20,000 U.S. troops were making their way to Europe as part of uh, Defender Europe 2020, which is the largest uh, troop movement exercise in 25 years. And it's primarily American. The majority of the soldiers are American. In fact, three quarters of the soldiers are American, and it's primarily funded by America. So I think we should Get off our high horses and and actually uh, appreciate that U.S. commitment on the ground, which is uh, going on even as as, uh, politicians squabble.
0: Mm. So we have Mike Pompeo being sent to this conference, France and Germany sending their presidents. A Britain sent a junior foreign office minister in his second day in the job. Christopher Lee, what does that say?
3: Well, it probably says that they weren't quite sure that the defence minister was going to keep his job during the shuffle. It was during uh, the shuffle, uh, and uh, that was why. But there's another side of this. Uh, There's another side of this. Uh, The 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 British are quite often sent, quite junior people, but clever people to these conferences, and unless there is a major statement to make. Uh, there is not much point in sending, that's been the, this has been the case in, in the past, right from the beginning of when, when this conference first started. It's a long conference to go to, you know, it's more than a day, that's what the British do, they send for a day.
0: And Elizabeth, the US was pushing this idea that China is the primary go- global concern, is there any evidence European nations share that fear to the same extent?
4: There isn't really. it's it's interesting uh, if we look at, you know, for example, just the issue of Huawei, which is really the most the most significant issue, uh, where the u s. sees uh, a strong security uh, threat, and European countries are, much more sanguine about it i mean it's, it's either something is a security threat or it's not either uh, it poses a, a threat the, the chinese government's access poses a threat or uh, or it does not either it exists or it does not so it's interesting it's, it's not a matter of um uh, Interpretation—it's you can measure whether whether a 5G network poses uh, whether it poses a security challenge or not. But but there are really completely different views on it. If I may just add something about U.S. presence at the Munich Security Conference, I think it was also a bit of a, just a mishap. Where uh, the reshuffle uh, happened at, uh, at, at just at the same time, mm. and as as, as uh, Christopher Lee just pointed out, nobody was quite sure who would be the defense secretary, for example. So, uh, in the including end, the uh, defense secretary, <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the end uh, they end up when well, they sent nobody. Although it should be pointed out, the Countess of Wessex was there.
3: Right there you go. Hey, listen, uh, there's another side of this. Um, with, with 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 about uh, Huawei, for example, America has a huge, the biggest uh, commercial defense industry and scientific industry in the world. Uh, it has a it has a history of trying to safeguard uh, the not just the secrets but future development uh, of, of what it does in that industry. And so you have, for example, a congressional. Uh, 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 statements saying you must and if you sign a defense contract you've got to not pass over certain information Mm. so you can buy yourself an F-35 and not get all the information just to fix it. And so I think there is a bigger thing with the United States about uh, believing that China would not only have access to say British industry but it would actually have access to systems that contained American systems or subsystems as well.
0: Mm. Uh, Elizabeth, um, this week the UN said, meanwhile, that the arms embargo in Libya is a joke with multiple countries breaching it. Is that an example of the West's failure, or or, or if not, whose failure?
4: Well, definitely the West, uh, but there are other... uh uh, failure has many fathers, but the West is definitely in that mix. Now, it's it's interesting to see that that uh, France and other European countries are on on different sides. I mean, how can we possibly have a, an ever closer union if we can't agree on, on which side of a, a civil war to to support? It's it's really uh, it's chaotic and it's it's disastrous for Libya and in the end, uh, disastrous for Europe as well.
0: All right, Elizabeth Braw, thank you very much for your time today. Now, it's cost two trillion trillion, tens of thousands of lives, including 456 British military personnel. Finally, could the war in Afghanistan be coming to an end? There's growing speculation the US will sign a deal with the Taliban by the end of this month. Well, before that, there'll have to be a week-long reduction of violence, a show of good faith. But if the deal comes together, it will see thousands of American troops come home just in time for November's presidential election. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to Sir William Patey, who was Britain's ambassador in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2012. He told me there's renewed optimism a deal is possible.
5: Well, I think on this uh, part of the Americans and the Taliban, they want to deal. The Americans are quite keen to get some sort of withdrawal from Afghanistan this year in the election year. The Taliban are quite keen to get an American troop withdrawal, but it's only a partial deal. Uh, it doesn't solve any of the uh, long-term problems in Afghanistan. Uh, it depends on what the deal says about a comprehensive political settlement with the Afghan government uh, and the Taliban so far have refused to deal with the afghan government so it's only the beginning of a process uh, that could lead to if you're very optimistic a comprehensive deal
0: beginning of a process and before this part is signed we have to get through the week-long effective ceasefire won't be easy given taliban attacks rose by more than half last year but that will be something
5: yes a reduction in violence is what the what the deal uh, says uh, i pretty confident the Taliban will avoid attacking Americans. Whether they can, across the whole country, avoid attacking any Afghan forces, that's another matter. I doubt the deal will have to be perfect for for the next phase to go forward. I think they'll just have to see a significant reduction in attacks. Uh, I imagine they will not call the deal off uh, if there's one or two, because the Americans are quite keen to get to the next stage.
0: You mentioned your concerns about the long-term political settlement. Do you believe the Taliban wants peace in Afghanistan?
5: No, they want power, and uh, that's essentially where they're coming from. I've seen very little signs that the the Taliban are prepared to be uh, a part of a political process in Afghanistan to share power with the existing government. They know they can't win power through the ballot box, so they hope that if the Americans withdraw they can put enough pressure on the on the government of afghanistan uh, to to take over now that's their aim i think they'll be misguided and uh, they, won't, they won't be able to do it but it doesn't bring an end to the conflict in afghanistan just because the american troops withdraw
0: and yet the deal does give them a huge say it's a step forward in the direction if that is their objective as you describe it
5: Well, it gives them a huge say. I mean, I've always argued that a political settlement in Afghanistan had to involve the Taliban. They do represent a a significant proportion of population in certain areas, that they would have to be um, a part of the process. They should be allowed into the process. And that would mean in certain areas they would probably be the local government. But they, they would not be able through, a, through any democratic process to convince the majority of Afghans that they should form a government. So the question is, are the Taliban prepared to play their part in a democratic process in Afghanistan with having something that is short of absolute power? And we've yet to see that. My thinking is they, they, will, they see this in stages. Remember the Taliban always tell us, you have the watches, but we have the time. They're patient. Um, they're prepared. That the, this stage of the process is they, they think if the Americans leave, that will weaken the Afghan government's hand, then that will force them to make more concessions to them.
0: When you talked to people in Afghanistan, what did they want? What did the people want?
5: They want what everybody wants, you know, peace and security. They want a future for their children. They wanted to go about their own business in peace. They weren't that bothered about the Taliban having a say in stuff. They wanted their government to be less corrupt. They wanted to get on with their lives, and that that hasn't changed. The question is whether there's any government in Afghanistan, any system in Afghanistan that can deliver that for them.
0: Almost 20 years the Western powers have been involved in, in Afghanistan. How would you judge it?
5: The C plus. <laughs> <laughs> Afghanistan is a very difficult country. It's been mm. wracked by coups, civil wars, invasions over the last 40 years whether it can ever get to that period before the 70s in which it was a poor country but relatively stable and relatively well, well run, whether it can get back to that is, is still a big challenge but it will only be achieved by the Afghans external powers can help them but you know we know that the Afghans have a sort of Uh, about foreigners running their affairs. They didn't like it when the Russians were there, they didn't like it when the Brits were there, and they didn't like it when NATO and the Americans were there. So in the end, it's going to be down to the Afghans themselves how this plays out.
0: That was Sir William Patey speaking to me earlier. Um, Christopher, on another subject, you've been looking at some research at the UN about the threat still posed by the Islamic State Group.
3: Yeah, well, it's it's posed in, in, in Syria and Iraq. And so there is this connection with the supposedly the end of the Iraqi war, which is, I could explain at any any time. Um, last year, the big story was that we've cleared out, according to the Americans, we've cleared out ISIS in, in Iraq and, and in, in, in Syria. And we've also killed in October the head of ISIS. Job done. Well, job ain't done. If you go into, you see what they're doing in the Office of Counterterrorism in the United Nations. They're pulling together of who's got what. 27,000 ISIS troops still in Iraq uh, and, and Syria. Another thousand to be released from, example, British prisons this coming year. Uh, the story has moved on to Africa and to Asia, where the majority of Islam lives. Uh, the story on ISIS and the war against ISIS is just about to get really, really bloody. The
6: FBS Zip Rep.
0: Now, a lot has changed in the two decades since the government lifted the ban on gay and bisexual people serving in the armed forces. Now, a group of veterans and serving personnel, some of them instrumental in fighting to remove that ban, are giving their backing to a new charity called Fighting With Pride. Rosie Layden has been speaking to some of them.
6: Military bands on parade at last summer's Gay Pride event in London. Soldiers, sailors and airmen happily mixing with the rainbow crowds. But the UK's armed forces weren't always so accepting of the LGBTQ community.
7: Just over 30 years ago, uh, I wasn't in a room sitting next to an admiral talking about LGBT issues. I was sitting in a small SIB interview room uh, at HMS Nelson uh, being asked about my sex life.
6: Sub-lieutenant Ed Hall describing how he was interrogated for 2 days as a young man with no legal representative before being dismissed from the Royal Navy for being gay. It inspired him to fight the ban on LGBT people serving in the armed forces.
7: It took 6 years to win, uh, but it was it was part of a of a strange process of a strange world where, you know, there were 100, 200, 300 of us who had been sacked and were in touch with each other and were angry and were talking to lawyers and were meeting and supporting each other and trying to find a way to get rid of a ban that we thought was profoundly wrong.
6: The fight with the Ministry of Defence took Ed and the rest of the campaign group, rank outsiders, all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. And in 1999, they won their battle. Today, the charity Fighting With Pride want to see equal treatment for veterans dismissed because of their sexual orientation. Just before the ban was lifted, RAF navigator Caroline Page became the first transgender officer to serve openly in the armed forces, but not before she'd spent years in service hiding her true identity.
1: But I was always looking over my shoulder. It was a scary, scary time because I was really scared that somebody would out me and somebody outed me. It wasn't just... Me then being thrown out and losing my job. It was losing that income, losing that home, losing my parents, my family, because I knew they wouldn't understand, losing my friends. It was more than just losing a job, it was losing my life completely.
6: As co-chair of Fighting With Pride, she wants to make sure those forced out under the ban are properly supported by the veterans community.
1: What Fighting With Pride, the charity, is trying to do is to uh, reach back to those individuals who were dismissed, who fell on hard times, who have been suffering, who uh, haven't had the support, don't feel that they can approach the normal service charities because they feel that having been thrown out of the services that they're disconnected from that. Uh, What we want to say is, uh, no, you're not. um, And uh, give them the support that they need. um, And also reinstate some of the um, things that were taken away from them which weren't fair, like taking away medals, like taking away pensions and things like that. Things that they'd earned, uh, but lost purely because of their uh, sexual orientation or their gender identity.
6: Fighting With Pride say they want to make sure LGBT voices are not forgotten. Rosie Layden, Forces News, London.
0: Now, Christopher Lee, before we go today, um, tell us about the ghost ship off Ireland.
3: Okay, two years ago, there's a Greek ship, cargo ship, bowling across the Atlantic hits a hurricane right uh and so the americans take all the crew off and say well the ship will just sink in the mediterranean in the in the caribbean or somewhere like that anyway it didn't sink it picked up on the gulf stream that's two years ago right other morning on tuesday morning this guy from the irish coast guard wakes up looks out of his pulls the curtains back looks out of his window and there's this huge ship leaning against ireland um, at Ballycotton, near near in, in, in Cork, it had come across on the on the on, just on the stream. Uh, interesting thing: satellites couldn't find it.
0: And what will they do with it?
3: Uh, oh, they'll, oh, the oh the the Greek owner will reclaim it, and it's an insurance job now. But I'm the interesting sorry. thing is, this thing had rolled across the Atlantic on the Gulf Stream, now, and they couldn't find it. So when they're looking for Russian ships, they can't find them.
0: And that is it for this week. Join us again same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now.